If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Malachi. It is the last book in the Old Testament, so if you find Matthew, go back one book. If you don't have a Bible with you, you are more than welcome to borrow one in the seat in front of you. And in the back of that pew, you can find the book of Malachi on page 753 of that Bible. We have come to the close of yet another year. And as we so often do, we find that once again, we cannot change a single thing that happened this year, no matter how hard we try. We can look backward on our year and find many things that we might want to change, words spoken in haste that we would like to take back, actions that we probably should not have engaged in. But by God's grace, we can only move one way through time, and that is forward. We simply cannot undo it. So today we might spend time looking back at it, but we must move forward. And there's a good reminder that we must move forward by simply being captivated to the past and be willing and desiring to kind of remove the things that have gone wrong. We can be stuck in the mire, as it were, unwilling to move forward. Paul tells us that we cannot do such things. In Philippians 3, he talks about his desire to know the sufferings of Christ, to know the resurrection of Christ, to know the power of the life of Christ. In other words, he wants to be like him. And Paul says this, It's not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It says several times over, guys, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I, I know I've looked back on my year, I've looked back on my life, and I, I just, I haven't accomplished the Christ-likeness that I would like in my life. And even those good moments, he says, I, I can't go back and do those again. I'm not looking to fix the past. I'm not looking to fixate on the past. I'm not looking to control the past or hang my hat on the past. I'm, I'm pressing forward. I'm pursuing this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Today is a day to look back. I think it's a time of year when we look back. But we do not look back to linger. We look back that we might press forward in the gospel. So let us take a good assessment of ourselves this morning, a sort of spiritual accounting of our lives. If we do such a thing as we often ought to do, we ought to be honest with ourselves. As you hear questions and you ask questions of yourself, I would tell you to resist the urge to justify yourself, to blow off your failures. It doesn't do anyone any good, especially you. But what must be even more important is that you must ask the right kinds of questions. Who hasn't heard a politician caught in some sort of scandal go before the camera and start asking themselves very easy questions so that they can answer them back? Were mistakes made? Yes. Did I steal that money? No. At least not that the tape said Did they act on my authority? No, I did not explicitly tell them to do that. We can easily do stuff like this and and be completely led astray, answering honestly. Do I love the Lord? Sure, I do. At times, last Tuesday, really, it caught me. The zeal of the Lord. Do I do the right things? 90% of the time, of course I do. Fortunately today, we don't have to find the questions. We don't have to make them up. But we can simply open up the scriptures and allow them to do this sort of soul-searching for us. Malachi 
is the last book of the Old Testament, both in the structure of the way we organize the Old Testament and chronologically. Zechariah was written somewhere around 520, or at least what he preached was somewhere around 520. The book of Malachi was written somewhere around 475 and 450. Because of the optimism of the book of Zechariah, you get the feeling that there has been a lot of disillusionment and disappointment that is set into the people of Judah. This grand promise of this kingdom coming, the grand promise of the removal of enemies, of peace and of glory, of a coming king, have not come true. The destruction of their enemies has not come. These grand blessings have not been obtained. Instead, life has taken on a steady, if not exciting, pace. They're still oppressed by those around them. They still have no king. They're still ruled by peoples who do not know them. Life just sort of continues. And because of that, failure has come in. But Malachi has come to address those failures and to point them to hope in the Lord. And so to accomplish these things, Malachi addresses the nation with some pointed questions. And it's worth noting at the very outset, as we read the questions and the way Malachi asks them, and the way he expects the answers are going to come from Israel, that Israel is not willing to give faithful answers to these. And what I mean by faithful is not just faithful to the Lord, I mean faithful to the truth. You rob God, he says. How have we robbed God? They respond. They don't even even understand their relationship with the Lord. They, They are completely lost as to who he is and what he wants from them. Let us not be so lost. Let us clearly ask the questions that come before us today, and let us do the best we can in our own hearts, if not from the pulpit, answer those things. The first question we are going to ask is not about you, but about whether you understand something or not. In the first five verses of Malachi, the question that faces the people is, does God love you? Does God love you? Let us read those first five verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. 2021 has been a hard year, probably not as hard as 2020, but it hasn't been smooth, it hasn't been easy. Many people in here have lost loved ones. I know of many people who have gone through grave personal difficulties. I know people that that I love and care for have gone through incredible difficulties health-wise and other. It's not a bad question for them to stand here and ask and say, I've gone through these things. I've suffered in this way. Does Does the Lord love me? Judah has heard promises from God but still feels the weight of oppression all around them. There's no king on their throne. They have only foreign authorities to answer to. It's very easy to think of the fact that they might not know that God loves them. They might question whether God truly loves them. God's answer to Israel is quite simple and yet profound. 
There were two brothers, he said. There was Jacob and there was Esau. I loved one and I hated the other. And he granted Esau much. Esau was blessed with the hill country. He was blessed with riches. You read through Genesis and you realize how much God actually blessed Esau with. But God is clear that the prophet Obadiah had spoken and God brought it to pass that Edom was to be crushed and crushed they were. They are now no more. Those people do not exist. He looks at Israel and he says, are you asking me if I love you? You exist? I, I destroyed Edom. And yeah, I sent you into exile for the same kind of sins. I sent you into Babylon and I sent you to Assyria but I brought you back. You might not be happy with the arrangement that there is now in life. You might not be happy with the fact that you don't have a king on the throne yet, but never doubt my love for you because you still exist. I still protect you. I still guard you. I still get you through. Simplest answer to the question of does God love you is simple. You are here. He has provided for you for another year. You are here to hear his word because he desires in his mercy to give you a chance to respond to it. You are here not because of your cleverness, not because of your devotion. You are here because of the work of God in your life, whether you were dragged here by someone or whether you showed up here on your own volition. It is a work of God that you are here to hear his word, to be able to respond to the call of mercy. Even when God has hard things to say, and he will have hard things to say, it is a sign of his love that he speaks them to you, that he doesn't just cut you off forever. Does God love you? Absolutely, he does. And you ought not think that God simply loved you as though it was a a past tense thing that happened while Jesus was on the cross, but since then, God has sort of wavered on. And, And the things that you do now might upset him, And therefore, his love for you might wax and might wane and might grow and it might decrease. No, God loves you with the same love that he has always loved you with. Whether you are evil or whether you are good, whether you act righteously or whether you act unrighteously, God has the same love for you that he has always had for you. His love continues to you for this day. Love is there for you. It cares for you. It provides for you. It sustains you. It's important that Malachi begins with that. Because there are hard questions for Israel and indeed for us to answer. The second question has three different parts to it. It is simply this. Do you despise God? Do you despise God? There are three ways that Malachi lists that the people of Israel might have despised God. Let us read of those from chapter 1 verse 6 through 2.16. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we offered, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? 
says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi might stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word 
of the Lord. The first way the people despise God is by bringing the worst of their possible offerings to him. Ask yourself, if you lived under a horrible despot, imagine that you live under the reign of Stalin. Stalin is an incredibly wicked man and prone to violence at the smallest of offenses. You, you look at the man wrong, and he might not just kill you, but he'd kill your wife and your family just because he doesn't like you, and then he would have your picture erased from all records in, in Russia. He's just a wicked man. And that man asks you to make him dinner. I guarantee you, it will be the greatest dinner you've ever cooked in your life. You will do everything you can to make it splendid, to make it perfect in every way, because you know that your life is on the line for it. Now, as it turns out, because we are gravely sinful and quite often stupid, we argue that if God is kind and good, He won't care if we don't bring Him the best. So we will work hard to save our lives from a despot. But when a good and kind God asks us for something that is rightly His, we feel like we can shirk on it because He'll let us off. Instead of giving Him that which is even better because He is kind and good, we assume His goodness as something to take advantage of instead of something that actually elevates Him above Something like a despot, he says, take it to your governor, this wicked Gentile, take it to him. Do you think he would accept it? Why would you bring it to me? We will speak of money later as Malachi brings that up. Might I offer the one commodity that the vast majority of us have the least of? It's not just money, but it's time kind of time do you bring to God as an offering? What kind of time do you spend understanding Him? What kind of time do you spend pursuing Him in prayer? Thinking of His works? Considering His ways? Spending time with His people? Praying with His people? Studying with His people? Do you honestly block out that time and say, this time is set aside for God? Or do you presume upon His goodness and presume upon His kindness and say, well, if I get around to it, I'll get around to it. There are other things that take priority over these things, over the gathering of God's people together. And understand, I'm part of that. Like, I, I spend more time studying the Bible, I would guess, than anyone in here. But it doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to me. There are times when frankly, I study Scripture more because it's expected of me than because I love the Scripture I study. It's the same thing. I'm not, I block out time because it's my job. But do I feel as though that is honestly the most important thing to me? I don't think that I always do. Do you feel like it's the most important thing for you? We block out times to gather in corporate prayer. Why do you not come? Some of you do actually have jobs. I understand. Those are important. And no, that's not Sunday morning worship, and I understand that. But make every effort to make the time spent with God and with God's people to be a priority for you. You do have other things going on. 
sports and Facebook and sleep and camps and vacation. None of those things are more important than God. We have to give God what is best for us. Even the times that are inconvenient for us, we give to him. The second thing that we come to is the work of these priests. They, they despise God because of the work of the priests and the attitudes of the priests and the, what the priests are saying about God. And it's very easy to think that this is kind of a word for the elders being the ones who have instruction on their lips, and that's true, but this is for you. You are priests as well. You're a believer. Do you turn people from their iniquity? Or do you cause them to stumble in the instruction that you give to them? Do you make major, minor things of our faith? Do you cause disquiet among the people of God by insisting that things that simply don't matter are terribly important? Or by making of grand important things that just simply don't warrant it? The very thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's not that those minor things are not minorly important. They are indeed important. You shouldn't neglect those, but you've got to know what is most important. You cause people to stumble over in incredibly small things. You show partiality in your instruction, as verse 9 says. Are you quick to point out the failures of those who might be outside of your camp or outside of your tribe or outside of your affiliation? Are you quick to point those out? But when the same thing happens to people who are near to you, who are in your tribe or your camp or your affiliation, are you, are you slow to point out their failures? Do you judge partiality. Such things bring disgrace upon the name of Christ and our God. God gave to the priests of Levi a grave and glorious task of keeping a covenant of life, of peace, and of fear. They held and it held true instruction for people. God originally had assigned to the nation of Israel to be a nation of priests. They did not live up to that. He has given us that call. We are, as Peter would say, a nation of priests. So is such instruction on our lips? Do we uphold the same type of covenant of life and peace and fear? Do outsiders or even insiders, people within this community, see the people of Crossway as filled with good and glorious instruction leading people in the right paths? Or do our words, actions, and attitude cause people to stumble before the Lord? Third area, that they despise God and his marriage. Judah had not kept the sacred marriage of her sons. They allowed their sons to marry outside of the tribe of Judah and to marry women who are foreign gods, which would not be a problem if those women converted to Judaism. It would not have been a problem had they convinced themselves that they were to serve only one God. But the fact that they are called the daughter of a foreign god indicates that that woman has never let up serving those other gods. She will lead him astray. She will lead her sons and daughters astray. This is the same reason why Paul insists that believers, if they are already married and they become a believer, then, then stay in that marriage. If the, if the unbeliever that you are married to wants to stay married, stay married. But if you are an unbeliever, you cannot, or if you are a believer, you cannot marry an unbeliever. Don't do it. 
You are unequally yoked. There will cause immense amount of problems and tensions within your own marriage, not to mention the confusion for the children. Here the problem is exasperated by the fact that these men were apparently divorcing their wives. They were sending them away, putting them in grave danger. This is not 2020. It's not 2021. It's not 2022. A divorced woman, a woman without the protection of a husband, was a woman in grave danger. Danger of starvation, danger of a lack of protection from violent men in the world. She was precariously placed in the world now because of the selfish desires of a man. God says, such is no less than violence against her. Sometimes, we, especially in conservative churches, are filled with lament as we state the, the nature of marriages in our contemporary society, and especially from those who would deny Paul's clear instruction that women are, frankly, to submit to their husbands. It's true. There are a number of problems that would come from that, and we can see that the state of marriage might in one way or shape or form be, be traced back to that. But it is astounding to me how much instruction in marriage has little to do with women submitting to men and with men actually loving their wives. Perhaps the greatest of all the marriage passages in Scripture, Ephesians 5, has three verses devoted to women submitting to men, and nine verses, three times as many, to men loving their wives. You tell me if conservative people, especially evangelical conservatives, writing about marriage today strike that same balance. And it's all over the place in Scripture. They're not even talking to the wives here. It is men who are the problem. It's not the women being non-submissive to their husbands. It is the problem of men not loving the wives of their youth. Let us strike a right balance. Men, if you are married, love the wife of your youth. Cherish her. God has not changed toward you. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So should you be to your wife. The day that you married her, you should be as faithful to her as that, as I hope you were on that day. If you weren't faithful to her, improve. If you were, keep it up. Love her, cherish her, be with her. Do not despise God that way. Third, do you weary God? Read again with me in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, by asking where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Do you weary God? Do you weary God by thinking that the Lord will not come in justice? That his justice will never come? Or by thinking that the Lord does not even desire justice, proved by the fact that he hasn't come and brought justice? Look around and say, well, God clearly must not care all that much about justice because justice just keeps on rolling on. We keep on having these sinful people doing sinful things. Malachi says very clearly, there will be a messenger who will come. He will state this later, in the end of chapter 4, that Elijah the prophet will come. We have heard from that prophet even this morning, John the Baptist, who has indeed come before the Lord appeared in the temple. There's something in prophecy we like to call telescoping. It's like using a telescope at time to look up at the night sky. And when you look up at the night sky, you will see stars that are incredibly close together. And you will think, oh, those stars are incredibly close together. When in matter of fact, they are billions and billions of light years apart. So at times when you read in scripture, it will sound like two events are very close to one another when in fact, they are meant to be separated by quite a ways. Here, no doubt, Malachi has his timing correct. The messenger will come before the Lord does appear. But these events sound much more like the second advent than the first. These words are then very, very applicable to us. Do we weary God by ignoring justice? This year was filled with a lot of silly and irreverent things, and one of the things I just, I can't get my mind around, I just don't understand where it comes from, is all of the infighting amongst Christians over the ideas of justice and its relationship to the gospel. So let us be very, very clear. Those who reject justice, whether legal, social, spiritual, or any other kind of justice, and any other kind of adjective that you want to put in front of that justice, reject not just the gospel, but they reject the God of the gospel. Now, I know that many would do this out of ignorance. I realize that. And I'm not saying anything about their salvation because many wicked people are saved by the grace of God. But I am without any hesitation saying that doing so is a gravely dangerous thing to do. Are there factions of people who wish to support social justice who do wrong by that? That we would look at their idea of social justice and say, eh, no. Absolutely. There are also plenty of churches who preach the gospel that we would look at and be like, eh, no. Westboro Baptist is one of those churches that we would rightly distance ourselves a long way from even though they preach the gospel. We do not throw Jesus out with the bathwater. The Bible is clear and unambiguous about the implications of knowing God and what that knowledge means for how we treat other people. Notice how closely justice, protecting the weak, or justice is, the idea of justice here in Malachi is very, very close to protecting the weak, caring for the wages of the poor, watching out for the refugee. 
They are linked together. And even more closely linked together are those who refuse to do such things. Those who refuse to protect the weak. Those who refuse to care for the wages of the poor. Those who refuse to look out for the refugee. Those people who refuse to do such things do not fear the Lord. They stand in proud resistance to God, whether they know it or not. Those who do so should be careful to check themselves. They will not endure the day of his coming. He will refine like a fire. And God will be very, very quick to stand up and use himself as a testimony against them, which, by the way, seems to be mirrored quite well in Matthew 25 when he separates the sheep and the goats. And he says, you served me by serving the least of these, and you did nothing for me because you didn't serve the least of these. Do not, do not find yourself standing against God. Fourthly, from 3, 6 to 12, do you rob God? Do you rob God? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord, again, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That's why these people have not been utterly destroyed. He has been good to them. God has loved them. He has brought them back to the land, but they are not quite back. He says, return to me. How shall we return to you? Stop robbing me. The people were to give a small portion of what God has given back to them. The tithe represents 10% of the fruit of the harvest to the Lord. You can imagine how difficult this would be for a poor agrarian culture. That is not just money, that's their life. 10% is a large amount. It's a large amount of corn when that's all you're going to eat for the rest of the week or for the rest of the year. It's a large amount of wheat when you consider that. And yet God said, I will watch over you. I will do good to you. This is why the emphasis comes upon God never changing. Remember what I've done for you. You, you wandered your fathers through the desert for 40 years. Their sandals didn't wear out. I fed them. I gave them water. I, I will provide for you. And they refused to do so. The question comes then to us, do we rob God? I am not going I don't think it's necessarily even appropriate to import the tithe from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I think that's probably not the right way of, of thinking about it. The tithe was used for a number of things that have no longer any implication for us at all because the tithe was primarily of, of food and other things, and it was used so that the temple of God would have food. Okay, so we're not going to import the tithe there, 
But nevertheless, it should be clear that we are a giving people, a people marked by our generosity. A generosity so that the word of God would go forward here without any hindrance. A generosity to see missionaries well-funded for the task that is ahead of them. A generosity to eliminate suffering in the name of Christ. We should give for all these reasons and more beside. And at the same time, make sure that the institutions that we give money to do a good job stewarding that money. And on this matter, I'll be honest with you, I have very little reason to complain about you in general. And by very little reason, I mean I have none. You all are incredibly faithful in your giving, which is marked out every month. We, we list it in the bulletin, how far we are ahead of budget. I'm, that's fantastic. I'm incredibly grateful for that. The only thing I would tell you is that I would tell you exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians when he marked out how well they were doing, and he said, excel still more. Keep doing well. And then I would come back to you as individuals and ask you, not as a collective whole, but as individuals, how are you doing in your giving? Are you known, not just as a giver to this church, but as a giver in general, are you known as being generous with your possessions? Are you known as being generous with your wallet? Are you known as being generous, knowing that everything that you give out, God is more than willing to give back to you. He is willing to supply every need that you have. Be generous this year. Be incredibly generous with your stuff. And the last thing that I would ask is if you're being a good steward of your money. Are you being a good steward of your money? Do Spectrum, Verizon, and local car dealerships honestly deserve the amount of money that you're giving to them? And does the Lord deserve the amount of money he, you are giving to him? Fifth, do you misrepresent God? From 3.13 to 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping is charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. Which is a brilliant, brilliant passage for Christ, because that is precisely what happens. God spares us because we are in Christ. I wasn't even planning on saying that because I kind of overlooked it the first time, but here we go. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Do you misrepresent God? Do you look at the, the injustice of the world and blame God for it? Do you think that God is the source of problems in the world or by the mere fact that God doesn't solve all of the problems in the world that he is indeed guilty of these atrocities? Do we think that people will get away with it? No doubt, the people of Judah had suffered an incredible amount. And they are waiting for God's justice to show up, and for decades it has not. They have expected the king to come, and for decades he has not. Little do they know, for centuries he will not. It will be a while. We might ask the same question today. There are governments around the world who mightily oppress their people. There are men and women in this world who abuse the youngest and the weakest among us. There are murderers and thieves who take what is not theirs and are never caught and never pay in this world. Why does God not stop it? No. 
there's a number of answers that we might give to that. We might talk about the vast mercy of God, even for thieves and murderers, even for those who abuse and oppress, that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance and a knowledge of the faith. We would remind people that God desires to build up patience in his people. We would also say that we are incredibly limited. We don't know the good that God desires to bring out of these situations, but even in that answering, we are reminded that answering is not quite what the Bible calls upon us to do. Rather, what the Bible calls upon us to do is what these people do. They remember the goodness of the Lord. They get together and they remind themselves of his faithfulness. They remind themselves of his goodness, of his provision, of his deliverance, of his kindness. And by doing so, they esteem his name. Let us be those kind of people. Do not misrepresent God. Do not take his lack of coming. Do not take the hand of justice not coming down from the sky as a manner of marking that God does not care about justice, but be patient and wait upon the Lord and extol his name. Chapter 4 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There is coming a day when all who are evil and reject the word of the Lord will indeed find that the Lord is a God of justice. You do not have to wait for it indefinitely. You do not have to wait for it forever. It will come. Those who patiently waited for the Lord, who practiced good, who sought his instruction will be healed and have great joy. What a wonderful picture that is. You'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. Here Malachi instructs us that Elijah will come before that great and awesome day. And even so, John the Baptist has come clearly marking himself out as we read in the book of Matthew as Elijah by his dress, by his food, as crazy as it was, it was clearly he was, he was sort of marking himself out as Elijah there. And what did John say? In the book of John, John says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May this be the defining reality of our lives in 2022 that Jesus has been sent in love to take on our flesh and our failures, that he has died in our place, and he has resurrected, that we can truly know God. So friends, walk in humble faith. Love one another and do right by your neighbor. For this is the path worthy of those called in the gospel, and this glorifies our God. Let's pray. Father, may all who call upon your name desire to walk faithfully before you with upright hearts, filled with love and mercy for all. Help and aid us this morning in becoming the people we have been called to be, that our witness might be true and right, that people might turn from the darkness of the world to the light of our Christ. Be with us, grant us mercy, and may your joy be ours. 
We pray for these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, Joy to the World.